0: listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So Romans 8 is, you need to know, is probably one of the most important passages of all of the Bible. In fact, one theologian calls it the cathedral of the Christian faith. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said if Romans 7 is the valley of the shadow of death, then chapter 8 is the peak of Mount Everest. It is a monumental passage. So this morning, let me kind of reorient us kind of where we're at. We left off several weeks ago now in chapter 7. And Paul left us in this really kind of devastating state where he said things like this. He said, I do not understand my own actions. It doesn't make sense to me. I do the things that I know I shouldn't, the things that I don't want to do. And I do the very things that I hate or I know that I shouldn't. And this is the Apostle Paul talking this way. And I found that incredibly encouraging because he's talking about this inner struggle that he feels, that he knows there is this future reality waiting for him, where God will present him blameless, and he will hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. But in his current experiences, that's not how it feels to him. And then he began talking at the end. He said, The wretched man that I am. I tell you, you know, I get some feedback from time to time and Man, I heard a lot about this passage to people saying, I'm so thankful we walked through this because that's how I often feel. I want to do better. I, I want to live better. I want to follow God, all those things. But I just feel like such a failure day in and day out. And to hear Paul say, the wretched man that I am, that Paul even felt that. And then he asked the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because he is trapped and I'm glad he finally left us with the answer. He says, there is only one in his name, is Jesus Christ. And so he leaves us with some hope. Well, then, chapter eight then is all about how do we live in that present or in that reality. So we know there's this future reality coming where believers will live forever and eternity in this place called heaven, in total bliss where sin and pain and death will no longer be able to touch us. But then how do we live in this current state awaiting that future reality? Because here's the things we believe, that we have been set free. But then our experiences push back against that, and they want to tell us, no, you're not. Our eternity is set. But our experiences cause us to question that. Paul talked about we have an inheritance that is is in heaven, first of all, that's where Jesus is, and he is our hope. It's safe and secure, how we can begin to question that. So then how do we live with this future reality? How do we live in the here and now? And that's what this chapter is all about. So do you want to know the answer right up front? Maybe you don't have to listen for the rest of the morning. How do you live a life that God has called you to? You know what Paul's answer is? you can't because you think about the things God calls you to as a believer. Well, he gave you a list of 10 things back in Exodus. If you want to kind of start working down that list and see how well you've been doing this week, tells us to love him above all other things, love your neighbor more than you love yourself, talks about forgiving a lot. Don't provoke your kids to anger. Giving more than you get. And then just in case we think we're doing okay in some areas, he says this, be holy. Not according to me, not according to the people sitting next to you. He says, be holy as I am holy. That's God's command. God tells you, calls you to be holy as he is. And that's his desire. So think of it like this. God is calling each and every one of us to fly. Now, what kid hasn't dreamed of that? I used to be on way too many roofs that I should not have been on or up in some tree house and picturing, man, how great would it be to fly? There were a couple of times I tried it, but you know, it doesn't end well. But that's, in some ways, that's what God is calling us to. But you and I have a problem and that problem is called gravity. It is this force that no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you cannot overcome gravity. Now, You might be able to jump higher than me. You might be able to kind of stay up in the air a little bit longer than other people. But no one in here can fly. But God calls us to be holy and righteous as he is. So thinking about it in that illustration, God is calling us to fly. Because calling us to be holy and righteous is probably even more impossible than us being able to fly because we can. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't desire that. doesn't mean we shouldn't dream about it. We shouldn't long for it. To be holy and, oh, mine's going out now. We're going to need to raise some money for some new batteries. So when we become believers, this desire to fly should actually grow stronger and stronger. As hard as it is, as hard as it may be, we still can't. And so then we find ourselves in this place where it's frustrating and discouraging and you feel hopeless. And so that's why Paul writes Romans 8. He's going to show us you can't fly. No matter how hard I try, I cannot fly because I can never defy gravity. So let me say it this way. I think this is what Paul is wanting us to hear to be crystal clear about. If the life you're living The life you have right now and you're doing a life, if you're living it, if it does not require supernatural power, you can call it a lot of things, but you can't call it Christian. If the life you're living, you really don't need God for, you can call it many, many things, but you cannot call it Christian. So Paul's going to talk about, we can't, we cannot do this, but the great news is there is a power that can. The power, in some ways, we'd say, can defy gravity. So, kids, here's what you're going to do. In the first 17 verses, I want to give you an assignment. Take your Bible or your app. If you've got that, I want you to see how many times Paul is going to mention the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. Kind of, maybe if you underline your Bible, you could do that. Or if you've got your little kid's bulletin, do a little tally mark. At the end of it, come up and tell me how many times in the first 17 verses Paul's going to mention the Holy Spirit. Because here's what's so hard about the Holy Spirit to me. is The Holy Spirit is kind of the, the neglected part of the Trinity. You know, we talk about God the Father, we talk about the Son, but the Spirit, it seems so much more difficult to understand. And I think a lot of that is reason is it's hard to understand the Spirit because it's this thing, this reality, this being that is so different than who in my experiences tell me that I am. So Paul, what he's going to do, he wants to help us to understand about the Spirit. That's what he's going to talk about. But Paul will not try to describe the Spirit in terms that we can understand. He's not going to give us a lot of word pictures in that way. So what he's going to do, he's going to show you, show us what the Spirit does. So look at verse 1. He says, Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are In Christ Jesus. So he uses the word therefore. What he means is, you need to know that's a major transition. It's a conclusion of what Paul has previously said in chapter 7. Because he knows there is this reality that he feels, that he feels like, I am such a wretched man. No one knows Paul better than Paul. But he's trying to preach this truth to himself. Even though I believe and I know and I feel I'm a wretched man... There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But understand, Paul isn't saying that condemnation is not real. That's a message that we hear a lot in culture. Condemnation is real. And Paul isn't saying that God does not condemn because he does. But for those in Christ, he says there is no condemnation. So what does that mean? It means you're free from any condemnation or all penalty of sin. It means there is absolutely no charge that can be brought against you. God today holds absolutely nothing against you. He finds no fault in you this morning. In January the 5th of 2020, no matter what kind of week or day or morning you've had, He finds absolutely no fault in you. You can't move back and forth from underneath condemnation based on the weak or how well or how horrible you've done. The second you come to Christ, there is no more condemnation left for you. It is gone forever, and you can never be under condemnation again. Absolutely. And I can't help to think there's got to be someone here today that, man, that's the message you need to hear. You don't need to listen to anything else. If that's the message you need to hear this morning, then that's the Spirit speaking to you. But Paul's now going to explain why is that possible? How is that? Look at verse 2 and 3. For the law of the Spirit, and there's your first one, of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from under the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And so Paul has told us over and over again, the law is good. The law has great purpose. But the law can only show you that you can't fly. It should stir desire in you. It should stir this want to do that. But the law can only show you that you cannot fly because the law lacks the power to overcome your problem and my problem of gravity. No matter how hard you try, you can't fly on your own. So God needed to do something, and he did into verse 3, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That God sent his son in the likeness Of human flesh. Because he was born of a virgin. He did not have an earthly father. So he was not accompanied by a full human nature. So he could then to condemn sin. To defy gravity. That Jesus had to come and do what we are never able to do. He comes and condemns sin that controls us and leads us to death. But notice that's not what all Jesus does. Paul has just said something that should radically change how you look at everything about life. Because I think oftentimes we talk about salvation, and we should in this sense, that salvation is your ticket, your pathway of getting eternal life. That there's two realities for every person. When you die, there is heaven and there is hell. One eternal bliss of total perfection where sin and death will never be able to touch you again. And there's one of total Uh, everything that's opposite of that, of pain and suffering, of all that we would say opposite of glory in heaven. And that Jesus is the way that you get to not go to to hell and you get to go to heaven. The way to eternal life. And we would say that's absolutely true. Because he had to come in the likeness of flesh, and notice, because of our sin, He lived a perfect life of obedience because of our sin. He had to die on the cross because of our sin. And he was raised back to life because of our sin. And if we put our faith and trust in him, we inherit eternal life. And that is absolutely a bedrock bedrock Christian belief. But notice there's more to the story. Did you see it in verses 3 and 4? Look at it again and see if you notice it. For God has done what the law... Weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law is not the problem. We're the problem. So by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. And that's where we talk about justification. You're made right before God. In order, so there's more to the story, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we not only came to deal with our sin problem, which gains us eternal life. Jesus came that we might, here and now, in this day and time, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Meaning that Jesus left heaven, He came to earth, He lived, He died, He rose again, so that you and I would fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. The thing that Jesus lives for, the purpose of his entire life, is to make us holy, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. His mission is not just to give you eternal life. His mission is for you to fly. And allow that to sink in for just a moment. He left heaven, not just to give you eternal life. He left heaven. His goal in coming was so that you could fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Because if the goal of Jesus' coming was only to give you eternal life, if that's the only goal, my question is, then why are we still here? If His ultimate goal is to move as much people from hell to heaven, from earth to heaven, if that's His only goal, if that's His only mission then the moment you're saved, the moment you're justified, why are you not immediately rushed into the presence of God Almighty? It's because the aim and the purpose of Jesus' entire life and ministry is not only to give you and I eternal life, but that we would fulfill the righteous requirement of the law here and now. But we cannot fulfill these requirements any more than we can fly. So if God expects us to fly, if that's his command and that's his desire, you would expect Paul now to kind of tell us how we go about doing that, how you go about living this spirit-filled life. But what he's about to do is something very different. He's going to give us two realities. But I want you to notice how he does this. It's not in a way that we might think possible. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Has he told us to do anything? He hasn't. He's talking about a reality. Those that set their minds on the things of the flesh, those are the things of the flesh, he says. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Notice, it's not a command. He wants you to picture two realities. And he wants you to see what happens to those that are in the Spirit. There's four of them. Look at the first one. It's in verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. It's not a command. He's talking about a reality. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. He's talking about a truth. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So notice in verse 6 through 8, it's a picture of a reality. There is no command. But the question we have to answer is, Who is Paul talking about this idea of flesh and spirit? Is he only talking about believers and non-believers? And I think you can very easily make that case. But could he also be thinking about believers and also believers? Believers that are in the spirit and believers living by the flesh. And I think you can make a case for both. So what you need is a new mindset. And notice Paul is describing that reality. So the question is, okay, then how do I do that? How do I go about getting that mind? When you come to faith in Christ, come to faith, through faith to Christ, it's not anything to achieve. It's something that's given to you. And when that happens, then you begin to see yourself and those around you, in your work, in your environment, you begin to see everything differently. But it's still a struggle. Because Paul is not saying, get your mind right, just set your things on the right things, and then you're living by the Spirit. Because notice, it's not a command. He's talking about a reality. So Paul is describing something that happens to us, not something we're to do. So once again, if the life you're living does not require a supernatural power, a power that is beyond you, that is outside you, then you cannot call it a Christian life. So the Spirit gives a new mindset. But then there's something else. Look at verses 9-11. through You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And here's what we often don't realize. This is not something we go and achieve. That there is a sense of a new life that happens. And when that happens, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead didn't just resuscitate Him. Brought Him back from the dead dwells inside each and every believer. In fact, Paul's not saying, you know what, if you want to fly, then just work harder, dream bigger, have better ideas. He's not giving a command. He's talking about a reality. Because if the life that we have now, if we can do it without God, you can call it a lot of things, but you can't call it Christian. So you're given a new mindset. You're given a new sense of life, but then there's something else. Look at verse 12 and 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh you will die. So is he told him to go do anything, no, he's talking about a truth, a reality. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, is he telling them to go put the death, the deeds of the body to death? He doesn't say that. He's talking about a reality. So I think it's obvious in this to see the truth between a believer and a non-believer. A believer doesn't know God, cannot please God. But could he also be talking about believers that are living by the flesh? And I think the question is, well, then what would that look like? I thought of a few. A believer lives according to the flesh when they're trying to become righteous simply by trying harder. That's living in the flesh. If a believer is living in the flesh when they try to love God, serve God, do for God, but they do it without Him. A believer living by the flesh can buy into this kind of self-made man, self-made woman philosophy. A believer living by the flesh can look at the Bible and Christianity only with eyes for what they're supposed to do for God. A believer living by the flesh approaches spirituality only motivated by a list of things to do and not to do. A believer living by the flesh looks at repentance only with the promise, next time I'll try harder. Listen, church, that is living by the flesh. And I've been guilty of all of those. Because here's what the flesh does. The flesh always seeks to reduce what God requires to things that are manageable and things that we feel like we can do on our own. And that's what the flesh does. So with the life you're living right now, if it does not require, if you do not have to lean on a supernatural power, you can call it a lot of things, but you can't call it the Christian life. So the Spirit has to give you a new obligation. But here's the last one, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And notice again, it's a truth, a reality. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in him. Now when they read this, a Roman person would have really had a nice word picture. It was the word of, of patronage. It's what would happen if you were of anybody of society. You looked out for someone in a lesser category and you made them a part of your family. You then gave them rights and you would bestow on them all the rights that they would have as if they were an heir of yours. And so Paul uses this language because he knows it would resonate with them. Because notice Christ is not just about making you a saved guest in his house. He came so that you would be a child and heir of the Most High God. So let me ask you then that that person that is, you know, being called by that patron to be a part of their family and that and becomes an heir, what does Paul say they need to do in order to make that happen? You see, the adopted person does absolutely nothing. The adopted person isn't trying to achieve this status. They're simply to live in that reality. Now many of you all know our story and so you know two of our daughters are adopted. And So Kylie was only two days old. She was just a little bitty fart. And uh, So she's now 17 years old and so here we were two days old with this little baby. So the question is what did she do to become adopted? She did absolutely nothing. She cried a lot at first and was hungry and needed change but She didn't do anything about being a part of this family. But she was simply to live in that reality. So she's eight years old. I asked permission to share this. She's eight years old. I'm not lying. I'm studying this passage. And I think Marla sent me an email like on Thursday. And so I was going through an old email. And I found a letter that Kylie wrote when she was eight years old. So listen to this. Dear Mommy and Daddy. Tonight is a very special night, and it was around Christmas. As you open your present and something she made at school, do one thing: Read the story right here, WRITE. She got, that, she got that figured out. Once upon a time, there was a little girl, two days old, was just put in adoption. There were two parents, wanted a baby. They got married at age 19, and prayed and prayed. And prayed. They trusted God to make their wish come true. And finally, they got a call saying they had a baby girl. And then noticed the three next words. That's our story. I love you. Love Kylie. So what did she do to make that happen? Nothing. But she simply learned to live in that reality. It's not something she had to set out to go achieve and to do better and to work harder. It was just to live in that reality. Because of the life you're living, if it does not require a supernatural power, if you feel like you can do it on your own and you don't ever have to lean on God, you can call it a lot of things. But you can't call it Christian. But it seems like Paul is leaving something out. Because here's what's happened. Paul has gone to great lengths of describing the difference between someone living according to the flesh and someone living according to the Spirit. The natural reaction, I think, is to say, okay then, Paul, I want to live by the Spirit. I want to be able to fly. I have a desire to do that. So just tell me what to do. But I have looked over and over in this passage for application. And do you know what's missing? There's not one single imperative. There's no command. There's no you shoulds and you should nots. He doesn't even describe any kind of behavior that will help me exist according to the Spirit. There's no seven-step plan for becoming more spiritual or getting closer to God. And to be honest, I find that a little frustrating. Because Paul, he's actually going to give a lot of imperatives and a lot of commands, and they will come later. But always they come in relationship, do you know, not between you and God. The commands, the imperatives, they always come between us and other people, of loving others. There are no commands, there are no imperatives that are given to get you the Spirit or more of the Spirit. The Spirit governs your relationship with God, your justification, your sanctification, for it's by the Spirit. But imperatives and commands, those are given to love one another. So instead of giving a bunch of steps, a bunch of things to now go and do, Paul over and over is wanting to drive home a promise. The Spirit decides on his own to start living in and through you. You don't get to decide that. You can't muster up enough, enough ideas. You can't bring up enough effort. You don't get to control that. And you can't. And that's great news. Because when that happens. Here's you know what the Spirit will do. It will give you a new mindset. A new sense of life. A new obligation. And a new identity. That living and existing by the Spirit. Is not what we do for God. It's what He does for us. Because remember, you can't fly no matter how hard you try. The spirit life is about not what we do for Him, but what He does for us. So you know what you do? The answer is really not complicated, but it's difficult. Because the flesh wants to control things. I need something that's manageable. I need something that I can do. So you know what Paul tells you to do? Nothing. You don't have to pray. You don't have to be guilted into doing family devotions. You don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to do a pile of good good deeds to become more spiritual. If the Spirit of God is in you, you know what? You are as spiritual as you're ever going to be. There's no amount of effort that can change that. So if there is a command, I think that's found in Paul's description of the spirit life. It's quit trying to fly. Because there's two ways you can fly. You can flap your arms as hard as you want. Or you can rest inside the comfort of a vessel that can defy gravity. So there's two ways to be spiritual. You can try and you can try and you can try with all your might to do all the right things. You know what? You're going to end up frustrated, discouraged, and hopeless. Or, you can rest in the truth that God's Spirit lives in you to guide and direct and to take you where you can never take yourself. And allow God's Spirit to then work in and through you. And when that begins to make sense, we can be sure that we are setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And that is when we are starting to understand grace. So if the life you're living does not require supernatural power, put a lot of titles on it. But the Christian life doesn't get to be one of them. The Christian life can only be lived by a power that is greater, that can do things that you could never do on your own. And our job is to learn to live in that reality. So this morning, I want to invite Kent Miller, one of our elders, to come and lead us in communion. And I know what you're thinking, man, this sounds like I don't have to do anything. Well, hold on. There's more to come. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible podcast.